Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Capturing the Carbon Imaginary on the Politics of Climate Intervention. Our music comes from Polish jazz pianist and composer Krzysztof Komeda, who died in 1969 at 37. This is the title track to his 1966 masterpiece, Astigmatic. To be astigmatic is to suffer blurred vision. I discovered Komeda mentioned in a blog post from the Australian Global Carbon Capture and Sequestration Institute, Global CCS, about the 2018 COP24 in Poland. For those not in the know, that's the 24th meeting of the Conference of the Parties, which is the supreme decision-making body of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The Global CCS Institute, as the name implies, is very involved in managing the implementation of CCS. Perhaps it's notable that board members of GCCS have worked for Shell International, British Petroleum, BHP, a multinational mining metals and petroleum company, and Summit Power Group, an energy development company based in Seattle riding the wave of so-called clean energy. And so it goes. But should it? Today's show is about understanding the need for a new social and political vision in the face of climate catastrophe, ecological collapse, and species extinction. New technologies must spring out of new ways to organize living if we're not to repeat the same mistakes of humans devoted to the attempt at dominating and subduing all of nature. Imagination is key, but not the socio-technical imaginary that wants to aerosolize the stratosphere as a way to delay the cascading effects of climate change. That sci-fi dystopia is brought to you by capitalists and neoliberal think tanks. The window for action on climate change is closing rapidly. As anxieties about global temperatures soar, demands for urgent action grow louder. What can be done? Can this process be reversed? Once temperatures rise, is there any going back? In her new book, After Geoengineering, Climate Tragedy, Repair, and Restoration, today's guest, Holly Jean Buck, charts a possible course to a livable future. Climate restoration will require not just innovative technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere, but social and economic transformation. The steps we must take are enormous, and they must be taken soon. Buck examines industrial-scale seaweed farms, the grinding of rocks to sequester carbon at the bottom of the sea, direct air capture, marine cloud brightening, and even old-school low-tech fixes like soil carbon sequestration and reforestation. The truth, to date, is that even if some methods show promise, they're still only imaginary when it comes to the scale of need. What's most worrying to Buck is the way the current capitalist fossil fuel barons are putting their considerable wealth and influence behind technologies that might fit the technical definition of carbon neutral or even carbon negative, and so serve their propaganda, but with the sole purpose of continuing to pollute for profit, in the same old way, for as long as possible. Who, or what, gives them the right to decide on the fate of life on the planet? Holly Buck researches the social dimensions of geoengineering as a faculty fellow with the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment in Washington, D.C., as a member of the steering committee for the International Climate Engineering Conference in Berlin, and as a doctoral researcher at Cornell University, from which she holds a Ph.D. in development sociology. And now, capturing the carbon imaginary on Interchange on WFHB.
So I do have to um, admit to you, it was hard, you know, reading the book after geoengineering, uh, sort of to read it and not just constantly think on every page that there's hardly anything but insanity in the human mind. <laughs> so it's it's a sad thing um but uh, uh let's start generally i guess um you know it's one of those things here we are 2019 i've been thinking about this probably more intensively lately and i guess since the david wallace wells piece kind of kicked everybody into into gear but when you start doing that research and start reading these books um you just keep going backwards in time you know, to discover these same arguments were being made many times before in much the same way with much the same technologies. Um, and that's somewhat what we discover in your book as well, right? Yeah, I think you can see that. Um, you can see, you know, sustainable technologies, people trying to introduce them in the 70s, in the 1930s, and just basically failing because petroleum was cheaper and more powerful. Yeah, it's the, it's the constant refrain. Petroleum is cheaper, more powerful, um, and still is. Uh, still is the refrain that we run up against. Um, let's look at the the book that I guess I wanted to ask in particular, or sort of cover this uh, out of the gate. That um, your book throughout uses uh, a kind of a sketch device, uh, what I think you would call a fictional device, but um, it imagines futures, and in some ways, uh, I guess it has roots in the way uh, Rachel Carson starts. Silent Spring with a, a fable, a dystopian die out due to pesticide te- toxicities. Um, your scenarios aren't quite like that. Um, you imagine, I think, actual human lives as best you can, conversations happening both in the midst and sort of after geoengineering is implemented. Why did you want to do that in this book? Yeah, I was really interested in using some speculative fiction just because so much of the writing and thought about these futures um, future climates and future technologies within these climates. It's just done with graphs and lines, and it gives you no sense of the social organization that in which these are being implemented and also the lives, the, the emotions, the, how it feels to live in a particular climate future. Because the differences between these climates I mean, you can have one version of a two degree or three degree climate that is terrible and another one that you might plausibly want to live in. And it's not the climate that's necessarily determining most of that. I mean, it's, you know, how authoritarian is the the regime or how have other technologies, um, how is artificial intelligence or synthetic biology or how have they been managed? How do those interact with climate intervention? So I thought that fiction is one way to enter that, or it was the way easiest for me, although I'd love to see, um, you know, other forms, visual forms, uh, video, for example, also kind of addressing the human qualities of these technologies and the systems in which they might be used. Hmm. Well, you, you brought up an important point there, obviously, the the ways in which this conversation isn't a single conversation, you know, these these ways in which we try to understand climate and the changes and um, how anyone, anybody, any government is approaching uh, dealing with it is is not is not a singular point of, of conversation. So um, how, I guess partly it's another way in which this is mind boggling, right, is, is the way in which all these particular issues are in, entangled in such a way that it's hard to speak about climate change 
in in a way that's sort of comprehensible. It's why I think it's easier to talk about those uh, scary aspects of climate change, right? What happens at two degrees? What happens at three degrees and four degrees? Even if it's still speculative, it's easier than thinking, well, what happens if this particular governmental body who is regulating this particular biotechnology does this particular thing? Um, but that's part of the calculus, right? That's the hard part to understand here. Yeah, we don't really have, you know, the same kind of modeling tools that we use for climate scenarios um, to help us understand a lot of those dynamics. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, has been interesting, um, again, I think more recently apparent too, is something that uh, we discussed here on the show with um, a climate leviathan author, Joel Wainwright, who you cite in your book at least once, um, about specifically the politics of the situation. You know, and one of the things that your book points out is that these things are being investigated. Who's paying attention? Who's funding them? Who's making it happen? Uh, Wainwright and Mann talk about climate leviathan, climate behemoth, climate Mao, and a sort of climate X, a hopeful climate X, you know, where they imagine social justice being a driver in how we address climate change. Uh, so the politics are, are, are a difficult thing to hear, you know, how things go forward. Uh, so, you know, when you, when you think about your book or you think about the, the ways in which you investigated these things, you know, were there specific ways in which you said, I need to focus on this particular aspect. I need to think about how these things work within either a failed political landscape, a failed uh, commercial landscape, a failed social landscape, uh, or, or was there some other way you went, wanted to organize this? Yeah, I was actually trying to focus on the best case scenarios because it's so much harder. It's so easy to imagine how solar geoengineering would intersect with, you know, an authoritarian form of um, right-wing populism that's concerned about migration and climate change, you know, has a pivot to actually being concerned about climate change in a few years and grabs for technologies like these and implements them in disastrous ways. That's all very easy to do, especially because um, as, a, as a critical scholar, you're trained almost for several years to think that way. I think what's a lot harder is to think about how these technologies might be used in a more collective democratic socialist form, um, which I'm not saying I even necessarily successfully did in the book, but it's kind of the direction I wanted to, to move towards just because I don't believe that the organization of the technologies is inherent in the technologies themselves. And there's actually some debate about that. Um, but my, my position is that something like direct air capture could be put to the public good. It's a technology that the fossil fuel companies will obviously be interested in. It's very likely that they will take up that technology at some point to continue oil production, to continue social legitimacy. Um, but it's kind of a what if experiment. What if you know the public decided to develop that technology? What would that require? What would that look like? And this book is really just kind of the beginning of that project and that conversation, um, which will require so many people to participate in. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Holly Jean Buck, author of After Geoengineering, Climate Tragedy, Repair and Restoration. We've been discussing some of the technologies for carbon sequestration and capture that oil companies will likely turn to their advantage in order to keep on destroying the future.
Uh, again, you just pointed out the one of the problems that is faced throughout is the idea of the existing uh, paradigm of life, right? Capitalism, uh, you know, fossil fuel economies, um, sort of working with these new emergent technologies to continue the practice of extracting fossil fuels, continue the practice of recovering oil, you know, using these particular technologies to continue to do the jobs they're doing and continue to make <laughs> things worse. Um, it's a, it's such a mind boggling aspect of, of this to me is that, you know, there are groups and companies, et cetera, that clearly know that this is, this is happening, clearly know, um, the future is not so bright in that sense, you know, but their focus is still on this particular way in which to manage their own futures and ours. Why can't, do you approach it at all for yourself? Are you able to, to really think about this outside of these sort of nest sort of necessary economic factors where you can let people off or, you know, say to yourself, well, these are economic necessities for certain groups, um, not choices, right? Um, or do we say these, foss the fossil fuel industry, certain groups, certain uh, corporations, certain people in government are not making choices, they're making uh, economic necessities um, happen? Or, or, or can we be more, I don't want to say moralistic, but on some sense, it's hard for me not to be uh, in this space, you know? Yeah, well, there's, there's a few things I want to say here. I think one, one is just that um, the starting point for this book and for a lot of thinkers on this issue um, is the so-called math of climate. And I'm, I'm using that phrase, you know, this IPCC math. This is, this is a phrase I've heard at oil company conferences and from like commodities traders. I mean, they point to this math too. So I'm not saying this is a totally neutral concept, but the IPCC and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in their special report on 1.5 degrees indicated that to meet a 1.5 degree Celsius, that's a 2.7 Fahrenheit target for limiting warming to that amount, that would would not have to, I mean, A, we would have to rapidly decrease emissions um, starting immediately at a, at a very steep curve, but B, also remove between 100 and 1,000 gigatons of carbon from the atmosphere. So that's, you know, each gigaton is a billion tons. That's a huge mm -hmm. infrastructural project, huge undertaking. And, and if you, you know, if you're reading those types of reports, thinking about the engineering, the land use change involved with doing something like that, that's kind of the starting point that a lot of people have with, with this topic, right? That, you know, which gets boiled down to pretty crudely science says that we need to cut emissions and remove carbon from the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then it becomes murkier because then you get, for example, California um, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories um, released a report this week. There are two interesting reports on carbon removal that came out this week, if your listeners are interested. The other one was by the World Resources Institute. But this one focused on California was a really interesting um, analysis of how California could start removing 125 million tons of carbon dioxide um, pretty soon, by, by mid-century, right, by 2045, because that's California's executive order. That's their target now that they're going to reach net zero by 2045 and then strive to be negative after that. And to reach that net zero, they're going to be removing all of this carbon. So the scenario goes. So I was trying to figure out why, 
you know, why they need to remove that much carbon. What's the assumption there about how much needs to be removed? Because the amount they're they're thinking about removing is, you know, 25, 30% of California's current emissions. So that's quite a lot of removals, right? Mm -hmm. Is it because we need to keep, you know, private jets flying and we need to keep choosing SUVs like the consumer demand trends have been? I mean, is that the assumed need like, like you were talking about, you know? Or, or are those existing residual emissions that we're going to compensate for by pulling all this carbon out? Are they going to be about, you know, steel to make new wind turbines and to build out the renewable energy infrastructure we, we might want? Those are very different choices. And right now, everybody's kind of bundling them together into this need for carbon removal and this need for these technologies. And so what I'm hoping we can start doing is have a really political conversation about how we're going to allot the remaining emissions um, that these so-called negative emissions are supposed to compensate for. It's time for a break. This is Cul-de-Sac, another from Polish pianist and composer Krzysztof Komeda. More with Holly Buck on climate change, repair, and restoration when Interchange returns on WFHB. Back to Interchange, our show is capturing the carbon imaginary with climate engineering researcher Holly Buck, author of After Geoengineering, published by Verso. In this segment, we delve into the absolute necessity for carbon storage technologies to be developed and implemented now as emissions continue to rise globally instead of falling. aspect there of, you know, trying to remove carbon in order to continue business as usual is a, is a question or remove carbon so you can ramp up 
um, other industries, other technologies that will uh, put carbon into the atmosphere in in the way that you have to do do things to build those industries. They're they're carbon intensive industries uh, um, that have to release carbon in the first place. So this is the Green New Deal idea of ramping up these technologies are going to going to put more carbon in the atmosphere in the first place while you hope to be able to negate it. Uh, in the interim. Right. I mean, is the vision here that we're going to continue some amounts of fossil fuel emissions for the foreseeable future? Or are there some that we need to plan for while we phase them down and ultimately have zero by the end of the century? Those are pretty different things. And people aren't, you know, appreciating that quite enough in the current level of discussion. Uh, I guess the f- question we should ask and that you that you point to throughout and that anybody that discusses this thing and I again I point to, you know, reading books from 2010 or earlier that mention uh you know geoengineering uh, uh, things of this nature. The, you know, the question being, you know, are these realities um, even even at this nascent level, do we imagine being able to to do any of these things? Even as these reports uh, pretty much uh, require that we do them, right? So uh, you mentioned the IPCC, uh, other reports also sort of start from the understanding that these technologies have to be implemented and work. We have to remove X amount of carbon going forward to hit, hit these particular targets, wherein the technologies are, you know, again are not. We're not, we don't have that capability at, at present, right? So the, the question of the book is, you know, are there technologies that we can ramp up or that we can put in place to begin this process? So let's talk about some of those or where you think our, our, uh, our most uh, hopeful places are, best case scenarios for these, these technologies. Yeah, well, I guess I'll, I'll say right up front that I think um, solar geoengineering is still very much a, a speculation, a socio-technical imaginary. Um, and then moving to carbon removal, I think that it's very clear how and why we might want to scale up some of the biological techniques, such as soil carbon sequestration, afforestation. I think those can be designed in ways that have um, a lot of co-benefits for communities. They could also be designed poorly, as we've seen from the past 10 years of um, various forest carbon projects that didn't work out as intended. But in general, I think that's pretty well um, well understood ground. Hmm. Then the thing is with um, the so-called engineered or technological, although I prefer to call them geological carbon removal strategies, um, just because, you know, any of these so- natural climate solutions at these scales are going to involve a lot of technology too. They're going to involve probably various forms of machine labor, various forms of you know di- data science to figure out how to do it all on the afforestation and soil carbon side. So I prefer to call the geological um, storage techniques geological just because they're being injecting carbon deep underground. Um, And I don't think those are, there's definitely speculative at the scales that they're assumed in these models. Um, And that's in the way that some people are talking about them. I mean, that they're thinking about the amount of infrastructure that would be on the scale of the existing fossil fuel industry, but for putting carbon back underground. So that's a huge undertaking. On the other hand, um, we have all that infrastructure for oil extraction. So I guess it's kind of like wave that carbon price magic wand and then 
you know, <laughs> that's that kind of the, the imaginary about how that will go. Um, An assumption that the uh, you can simply uh, flip the current industries into ones that do things like carbon capture uh, and utilize the current infrastructures in some fashion to to do the opposite of what they've been doing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so the new um, imaginary is what's being called the carbon neutral or carbon negative oil. Basically, this drive to make um, oil have a, a less high carbon intensity, have it be like a cleaner, recyclable form of oil. And the premise of that is that um, so there's something called enhanced oil recovery. So a lot of wells, they get depleted. They they only recover between like 5 and 40% of the oil in a well the first time. Um, and it's not economically productive to do more. But now what they're doing is revisiting these depleted wells with new technologies that allow the further extraction of oil. And one of the main ways of doing that is um, flushing the wells with water and then with CO2. and the CO2 that uh, is injected into the well to recover this additional oil stays there. So now there's a way to kind of claim credits for sequestering that CO2 in the well, even though it was used to produce more oil. Um, there's a federal tax credit called 45Q that provides $35 a ton for that what's called CO2 EOR process 50 for CO2 dedicated storage, which would be just injecting CO2 into an underground cavern where it could stay there. Um, and so if, in theory, if you injected a lot of extra CO2 into these wells, because right now they just want to inject enough that will allow them to recover the oil because they have to pay for the CO2. But if the public subsidized this, they could inject so-called extra CO2 into the well, then produce a form of oil that is ostensibly carbon neutral or carbon negative. And you can kind of, if you follow this conversation, you can kind of see that might be a direction in which it's going. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Holly Jean Buck, author of After Geoengineering, Climate Tragedy, Repair, and Restoration. As we careen into climate collapse, we continue to be overmastered by the polluting industries and their political and economic power. We continue to... Im- to work within these same parameters with the same um, people and companies that are doing these things, and as you mentioned there, they you 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 spoke to the fact that you would want to not not inject so much carbon because it costs them money to actually do so. It costs them money to do the good thing while they do the bad thing. And so they'd want to reduce their uh, the cost of their doing the good thing so they could increase the profits from doing the bad thing. And so we struggle against this particular element of all these conversations. But to imagine having these conversations in which you continue to have sort of capitalist profit conversations um, it, without having some other way to talk about it. And I think that's part of your wish, right? Part of the focus of the book is um, trying to find practices that create uh, opportunity for uh, civil engagement, uh, practices that are democratic, practices that take these technologies out, out of the hands of these industries. 
in the first place. These supporters of these industries, these politicians as supporters of the industries, the billionaires who support these industries, et cetera, et cetera. How do we take these, how do we not let these people be the drivers of these possible technologies? Yeah, I'm really concerned about this because I, too, think that that particular <laughs> carbon negative oil direction of development of these techniques is a nightmare. I mean, for, for a lot of reasons, because, it, you know, these extractive societies are pretty unequal. They have unequal gender relations. If you go there on the ground to some of the places um, that they're talking about, you know, you can see this. And there's just the total failure of imagination, you know, when it comes to thinking about um, other ways. And it's hard. You know, I, I have a bit of it, too. Um I think because our a lot of us, our natural reaction when we hear about this is to say that we don't want any part of this. We need to fight this, which is which is also true. I think we need to fight this version of this, right, by proposing something that's better that we can put on the table and not just be in this reactive, defensive crouch that um, the environmental left has been in, uh, understandably, for so long. You know, the first reaction is to just want to turn your back on all of this and think, you know, can't we just do something that's greener? Can't we just plant enough trees? Well, actually, we can't plant enough trees at this point. The crisis is so far in that some of these industrial scale technologies could really help, not just, you know, for people around the globe, right? Because the U.S. in particular has such a historical responsibility for emissions. The companies here do. So, I think there's a very strong moral case to actually develop some of these things here, put that carbon back underground, make it a bit safer for everybody on this planet. In the end, what one wishes, right, is that if these technologies are possible, that one forces the particular bad actors to actually become the good actors, not so that they, again, can profit off of it, but that so they actually don't profit off of it so that they are forced to do these particular things. Um, but if we say these industries exist and these things are in place, do we simply need to remove the people who are the ones making these particular onerous decisions. You know, one of the, it's one of the things we get stuck in having these conversations is that we start to imagine a kind of uh, dictatorial aspect or a sp specific sort of directive from government that we imagine being benign. Everybody's favorite example is, is World War II, right? Where it, let's just make technology turn on its heel and do the thing we want it to do. So why are there no realities to that aspect, you know, to say, can we not nationalize X? You know, are we, do we have problems with the politics of trying to understand different ways to direct our national activities, right? Instead of saying, oh, that's, that's unfree or that's not capitalist or that won't work in the markets, you know, to say, well, the markets aren't going to save the planet. You know, we have to think in these terms because these bad actors aren't going away. I think that we are starting to have more of the nationalization conversation. I've, I've heard it a little bit, especially if you think about something like utilities, like PG&E after these wildfires, that actually had a moment of being a fairly mainstream question, mm. right? Um, and I think there's a lot we can build on there too. And then it becomes a matter of structuring that nationalization. So it's really taking ownership of something that's an asset and not just holding a bunch of liability. Um, yeah. And I would love to hear thinkers who've really studied, um, you know, nationalization of other industries 
what they would have to say on that. That would be a fascinating program because it's something that there are like fairly recent historical precedents, not in the U.S., but in other places with varying results. It's time for a break. This is Get Out of Town, another song from Polish jazz pianist Krzysztof Komeda. More on the barriers to innovation in biofuels and alternative energy systems when Interchange returns. Back to Interchange, our show is capturing the carbon imaginary with climate engineering researcher Holly Buck, author of After Geoengineering, published by Verso. In this segment, we discuss the ways cheap fuel has delayed and subverted innovation that would have and could now help mitigate the effects of climate disruption. Uh, I know it's this has been a kind of top level or political conversation and without so much uh, conversation yet about the particular um, technologies that you address in the book, um, biofuels, as you mentioned, soil before as well, carbon sequestration, carbon capture. Um, you mentioned on, um, I think it's on page 68, you asked the question, you know, what would biofuels look like without capitalism? And this is obviously another political question, but the the technologies require a different economic organization in some sense, right? They do. I mean, we have so many promising biofuel technologies that are just not implemented um, because they're not economically competitive with fossil fuels or with cheaper, you know, corn-based, sugarcane-based uh, biofuels. I mean, it's it's just one place where it feels really tragic to me that the potential is there and it's not being used because this or economic system is effectively saying no to it. Um, and so for what that looks like, I mean, the, the thing about using biofuels to produce negative emissions is that they have very particular geographies, right? If that life cycle analysis of the system is going to be carbon neutral and then carbon negative, you can only be transporting the biofuels from so far to where you're processing them mm -hmm. and so forth. And I think that those constraints actually make it really interesting to think about how, um, cooperatives could work together to achieve carbon neutral, carbon negative fuels. 
one of the things, Holly, that I, I keep coming back to in my own head is the problem uh, being so large and the, the, um, the need to approach it in a large fashion as well, right? The, the, uh, and again, this is where I, I, I guess I'm uh, leaning heavily on Wainwright and Mann here, but the idea of these sort of global governance happening um, and taking the control away from people the idea of a democratic process of energy generation or carbon sequestration or regeneration and restoration is uh, another way that you talk about it in the book as well. Having um, basically global or international groups that are already in place who've already created sort of world government structures uh, begin to make these decisions uh, in a way that we we as uh, as people of different countries can't necessarily dissent from. You know, as you start to look up the people who are making some of these choices or who are involved in particular positions in NGOs and things of that nature, I was uh, just just kind of bouncing around the Internet and discovered a guy named Janos Pastor, who's the Carnegie Council Senior Fellow and Executive Director of the Carnegie Climate Governance Initiative, which used to be called the Carnegie Climate Geoengineering Governance Project, who was once a director of Worldwide Fund for Nature and once a director of the World Council of Churches program, Energy for My Neighbor, in the early 80s. So here's a person, um, Hungarian and Swiss, I believe, um, who is, you know, who has been in, in this situation or these types of situations for the last 30, 40 years, who's a part of this kind of organizational structure for world governance on these issues. I just kind of lose my will to understand some of it, right? How these structures have been in place for so long that will direct the, the future. Yeah, well, I mean, the people who sit in these places are reading the same reports, seeing some of the same signs as we are. And if you have a lot of, you know, decades of expertise in the international system, or if you have decades of expertise in, you know, Congress or wherever you might be sitting and you're watching these, I mean, it it does seem like um, an impending train wreck, right? So, so I, I, I I know folks working um, with the Carnegie Geoengineering Governance Initiative, or however it's called, the OC2G. I think that they have a, a huge concern about um, what happens when one nation state might want to use some of these technologies and there's no global governance agreement. So one thing um, that organization had, had worked on in, in conjunction with the, the Swiss government and a number of others was to have a resolution at the UN Environment Assembly um, that would have the UN do its own like high-level assessment of all of these techniques, their technological maturity, the risks involved, and possible governance mechanisms of them. And it was the, actually the U.S. and Saudi Arabia who basically um, shot that down because they didn't want a body of, you know, an international body to make recommendations about governance. They wanted it to just be under the UNFCCC, which is a scientific body that would just look at the science because, I mean, presumably they didn't want any governance recommendations that would constrain their action here. And so... That was a shame that, you know, they have these these kind of old school UN people. They want kind of that, um, you know, a global assessment of these technologies would be probably more sober than just, you know, possibly the U.S.'s or Saudi Arabia's. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that might seem like like a tangent. But I, and my main point is that anybody who's been watching climate and environment is going to be concerned about geoengineering and people are going to address it in the ways and structures through which they're familiar 
I think the same thing goes with a lot of scientists who are researching this topic. Uh, the great majority of them are, you know, people that are trained in climate modeling, freaked out about climate change and applying their tool set to the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're applying their particular hammers to their particular nails. Yeah, exactly. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Capturing the Carbon Imaginary, and our guest is Holly Jean Buck, author of Verso's After Geoengineering, Climate Tragedy, Repair, and Restoration. We're exploring the global intervention of solar geoengineering and its twin, marine cloud brightening. Let's talk about uh, these particularly scary uh, items. Uh, solar geoengineering seems to me, I guess, the perhaps the scariest one, or the one in which we we imagine an, a useful effect. Like uh, if you've talked to people about it, or or listen, or read about it, you get this kind of well. It's like the uh, like a volcano erupting, and we know from history that volcanoes that erupt, uh, if they're big enough, they throw out the ash and 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 sulfur into the air, and there's one to two years of cooling in the planet. And so we kind of want to you know do what nature does. Um, so expand on that if you will, and and give us a little sense of what solar geoengineering is, if it has to be global, like once you do it, you do it everywhere, or is it patchy? Is it possible to do solar geoengineering or the theoretical idea that you can do it in bits and pieces over certain places, create climates in a sense? I think David Wallace-Wells talks about creating climates uh, in this future scenario of solar geoengineering. You know, it actually is a global intervention. So there's two techniques I'll talk about. One is stratospheric aerosol injections. And the basic idea there is you have a large infrastructure for flying particles, well, aerosol precursors that will form particles up into the stratosphere, which is a layer above the troposphere where we are, a layer of the atmosphere. And so those particles would circulate around the globe for a year or more um, before falling back to Earth. So it's kind of like this shield that needs to be continually maintained um, with all these jets, right? Jets that would be specially designed to both fly in the stratosphere and carry a load of aerosol <laughs> precursors. So th that's a global intervention because the the winds of the stratosphere and the um, atmospheric circulation brings the particles all over. The, the other idea is something called marine cloud brightening. So that's making clouds more reflective or exist where they might not have existed over the ocean in particular um, by, by spraying salt, for example, into clouds um, because salt particles act as cloud condensation nuclei and create more water droplets, which makes them brighter and bigger. And so people have been thinking, could that be done regionally? It could be done regionally for a particular application, like perhaps cooling a coral reef for a little while during a heat wave. But um, if you start doing more and more of this in different places, it can have a climactic effects in places far away, what's called teleconnections in the climate system. And so people are concerned about that, modelers who, who are trying to understand it. Both of these ideas, the idea is to just block a fraction of incoming sunlight and radiate it back to space, right? And I think that they're both considered global at this point. Hmm. Well, it, it's this kind of technology or this kind of idea that uh, is kind of one aspect oriented, right? The, the chain of um, effects that are happening due to warming are now um, really go beyond 
the sun in some ways, right? It goes beyond the warming effects right now. You know, the, the ways that things are melting, ocean, ocean acidification, all the other nice things we did to do to the planet are kind of uh, becoming cumulative in this negative feedback loop of, of climate disruption and climate disaster. Uh, so, so in some ways, you know, I understand a bit of the kind of desperation of these ideas. Uh, would you, is that fair? I mean, do you think that's fair? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's funny the the scientist who um, kind of so-called broke the taboo on geoengineering, a, a gentleman, Paul Crutzen, in 2006, he writes this article, which is basically a kind of a, a think piece in, in climatic change in some ways, looking at um, albedo enhancement via stratospheric aerosol injections. And, and that's the reflective aspect, the albedo, yeah. albedo effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he and in that article, he assumed that nobody would ever actually really look at this because it doesn't do anything about ocean acidification. I mean, they well understand that, you know, it's only good for particular things and that there's other really crucial aspects of climate change like ocean acidification that it doesn't address. But I think the idea is that we need to research this because what if we end up with a worst case climate scenario because of feedback loops or tipping points that we didn't anticipate in time? It's time for our final break. This is Don Quixote. Another composition by Shistov Komeda. Stay with us for more Capturing the Carbon Imaginary with Holly Buck on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. For our final segment with Holly Jean Buck, author of After Geoengineering, we'll talk about the way technological imaginaries serve to distract us from the most necessary aspects of confronting climate disruption, ceasing to emit carbon and removing it from the atmosphere right now. A 
Holly, when when you're doing this kind of research, uh, you know, where does your nose take you? Like, I'm sure there are uh, like many, many, many things to to think about, many ways to to do this research, many things that interest you. You know, how do you decide to go where you went? You know, how do you decide to to investigate the particular issues you investigated? Well, this book came from ten years of participating in conferences, discussions, kind of observing mm-hmm. <laughs> the development of this discourse, which which has, you know, shifted a bit over 10 years, obviously. Um, right now, I'm, I've been focusing a lot more on the carbon negative oil concepts, because I think it has the potential to kind of upend climate policy and climate politics. Um, and I don't know where it's going to go. So, what do you mean by upend? So that you think that it's going to um, be uh, evocative to people or interesting uh, to the profit makers, and they'll push that direction. Well, yeah, and, and then you're in a situation where if your politics um, has been about ending fossil fuel production, putting fossil fuels, you know, just quitting them entirely, which is where mine has been, frankly. Um, And then you have these guys saying, you know what, we can keep on using fossil fuels. You can keep flying your planes. Um, We'll just make them carbon neutral and carbon negative. Then I think when it comes to the, you know, wider U.S. public opinion or something, I think that a lot of people who might be undecided or might not pay too much attention to climate change, which is most people probably would think that sounds okay compared to suddenly your position of putting fossil fuels underground and leaving them there looks a lot more extreme. And so like, I'm, that's what I'm worried about. Well, you talk about uh, throughout and other people talk about this as well, the idea of these uh, particular scenarios that become, um, Oh, that, that distract, I suppose. Maybe that's the best way to say it. You know, scenarios of technological advance or technological aspects of geoengineering that might take away from this simple idea that the best uh, thing to do, as you, I think you've already stated, was to, you know, stop emitting carbon and actually having to remove it from the atmosphere. Those are the two requirements for the world to not heat up beyond species extinction level. Are these technologies going to serve to actually uh, confuse more people than they actually, you know, help out? Yeah, that's a strong possibility. I also think that, you know, this is something that um, my colleagues, Nils Markusen and Duncan McLaren have called mitigation deterrence. People also call it a moral hazard effect, basically that they reduce energy momentum and they distract um, from from the mitigation goals. And I'm also worried about that with regards to adaptation, because I think we need to mobilize huge amounts of resources for adaptation. And I'm worried about just these distracting from that as well. It's interesting. You end your book um, with uh, an indigenous uh, I sort of quote from a, an indigenous researcher at Michigan State. Um, I think, uh, was it uh, Kyle? Kyle White. Kyle yeah. White, yeah. Uh, so like Dar Jamel, who ends his book, End of Ice, with uh, uh, an also an indigenous perspective. The the thing that you quote from Kyle White is, is I think, the most important thing that we, we kind of continue to evade here at least in the U.S. and probably more, uh, uh, more so as well, the other Western uh, capitalist countries. You know, the fact that climate change has happened, is happening, uh, the kinds of ways in which particular 
governments and countries and peoples have destroyed other peoples through actually changing their climate, you know, changing their geographies and geologies and whatnot, right? So the actual oil industry itself uh, taking over countries and peoples, uh, the actual slavery, removing people. And, and, you know, so these kinds of things have happened and continue to happen at those levels. And so now we turn to indigenous populations to say, hey, you people who've been, you know, hurt, beat, uh, you know, killed, murdered, moved off your land. You've had to uh, to actually handle this kind of existential crisis your entire existence. So do you have any answers for us? Yeah, well, that's not what I was trying to do by um, quoting Kyle Weitz and his scholarship. What, what I would like to have more of is just, you know, people are living in, in these landscapes, right? It's there land that, that all of this carbon removal and all of these other infrastructures are imagined to take place in. Mm-hmm. And yet the, the conversation completely has been ignoring that. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest, Holly Buck, researches the social dimensions of geoengineering. We're speaking about the perspective of indigenous communities when confronting ecological destruction. Well, what I've increasingly been learning from um, listening to indigenous scholars and thinkers um, is the, the definition of the crisis is just defined way too narrowly, right? In, in, in this book, in, in a lot of books that are out right now, because we're focusing on climate change and climate crisis, and that's thankfully getting a lot of attention, finally. I mean, <laughs> some some modest amount of attention compared to what it has, still not enough compared to what it needs. But that's still too too small of a frame, right? Because this is a broader ecological crisis. It's about extinction, loss of habitat. And then it's this social crisis of settler colonialism, um, historical and ongoing at the same time. And, you know, just to talk about climate change, all of these, this broader sense of crisis is what's actually relevant and, and needs to be dealt with. Um, and I think that still we don't quite have the conceptual language to talk about it. But I also think that social systems are really dynamic. We, we may be on the brink of, you know, a flip into another system change. It's really hard to know, I think, right. beforehand. You say already, you know, this is kind of the beginning for you or beginning a conversation and, you know, the book, even though taking uh, 10 years of your life um, and sort of being within the midst of how people started in 2010 to engage with the realities of a, an at best scenario of four degrees in 2010. Now, this is Clive Hamilton I'm reading that tells, says this particular four degree increase is already baked in. And as, as you know, and as people that have listened to the show know that, you know, multiple other people talk about two degrees and 2.5 degrees and three degrees and, you know, uh, who knows, but, um, you know, in this space, what, what is the most important thing you'd want to take away from this um, endeavor to look at these technologies? What can or should we at least try to focus on um, after, in a sense, after we almost dispense with geoengineering in some way, you know, or, or look at it in a different way? I think the main thing is that the choices aren't just about which technology we might want or accept, but 
about the social organization of that technology, who participates in designing it, shaping it, who profits from it. And whether the technology even works as intended is really dependent upon those social choices. And I would encourage everybody who might be like me, you know, hears about this large scale carbon removal infrastructures and thinks that's just awful. Feel that reaction because it's like understandable and warranted. But then think about what happens if we don't engage with that, because then we're ended up in a, a situation where, you know, people we don't like have run with it and we've lost our opportunity to get in there and change what it might become. Well, what are the best ways to get in there and make that difference? I mean, there are the standard ways we think about these things. I don't know, politics, um, uh, protests, you know, are there other ways that we're, I mean, like, like I said, there are certain people that have been sort of in place for a very long time, certain institutions, organizations, um, um, that, that have these, these, you know, decades old, you know, actors, bureaucracies as well who have been in place already. How do we how do we wrest this particular control? Or, you know, how do we how do we get inside of it? I mean, it's not it's not it's not business as usual, right? How do we get inside of it? Yeah, I think that there are actually a lot of existing structures that can be used and and as well as new movements like Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise Movement and some of these we've seen. Um, influence how, how they engage with it, talk to people there, um, show up for actions. But then I also think that there's different things that existing organizations do. I mean, every every major NGO that people might be members of, um, you know, the Nature Conservancy, Sierra Club, Environmental Defense Fund, whatever, they, they all have, um, you know, programs and people who are watching this issue. So, you know, write to those people, tell them, you know, how this might might or affect you where you live or not, um, what you might like to see. Like, start those conversations with these people and these established organizations, too. And I also think that local and regional governments, I mean, they are working on these things as well, increasingly. So this is kind of the time. That's our show. We'll close with After the Disaster, a final selection from Polish jazz pianist and composer Szysztof Komeda. Our thanks to Holly Buck for helping us confront the impending political decisions about climate interventions that will chart the course of what may or may not be our future as a species. And still we're left with Rachel Carson's key question about ecological and atmospheric intervention. Who has the right to decide how and when we intervene in lives and ecosystems? And why don't we, the people, ever ask this question or assert our own right to decide with real force? Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.